Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we come together as a group in order to study the words of the Buddha from this book series titled The Words of the Buddha. We're in volume three, chapters 101 through 110. And if you're joining us for the first time, these books are available at no cost on our website. You just go to buddhadailywisdom.com and click on the link for free books and you'll see these books there. And you can actually read each week the 10 chapters that we do and then come together in a class like this in order to discuss the chapters and learn. If you are joining us for the first time and you haven't done reading, it's okay because we're gonna read these in class, discuss them in class and give a chance for everyone to ask questions. But if you would like to join for future classes and you would like to read ahead of time, you're welcome to do that by downloading the book or you can even print the book if you like or order printed copies from Amazon. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether it's your first time or you've been joining us many times in classes, because one of the best ways and truly the only way that I know in order to progress on this path to enlightenment is to study the words of the Buddha. In order to understand this path to enlightenment, you would need to understand a Buddha's teachings because it's a Buddha who discovers the path, who's the originator of the path, and who's the declarer of the path to enlightenment. So as we learn the words of the Buddha, we're able to then understand what this path to enlightenment is. The challenge is is that over 2,500 years of time has gone by from the lifetime of the Buddha until now. So there's been kind of in common discussions and common venues, there's been kind of these changes through oral tradition. But when you go back to the original source, which is what we do in this program and the other programs that I teach as well, is going back to the original source, which is the Pali Canon, you can see exactly what the Buddha taught. And then you learn that, you reflect on it, and you practice to see the truth for yourself of whether or not his teachings are actually working. You don't believe his teachings. You don't have faith in his teachings. You don't just blindly follow what he says. These aren't rules. These aren't commandments. What he's providing you is he's providing you guidance and instruction of helping you to understand these natural laws of existence and what exists in the world so that as you learn those and you gain the wisdom, your mind awakens. When we talk about awakening, what we're talking about is gaining wisdom to make wiser decisions based on these natural laws of existence and particularly this natural law of gamma. That's what the mind is awakening to is this wisdom. But the way that you do that is not by believing the teachings, but by learning, reflecting, and practicing. 
And as you do and you practice the teachings more and more, you observe the mind moving to this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, where eventually if you attain enlightenment, the mind is permanently experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy and your life is straightforward it's very easy you can make decisions very easy your relationships and the things that you have around you are just very easy to ebb and flow and make decisions and resolve things that you're challenged with or things that you interact with you can just very easily conduct your life because you're now making decisions through these natural laws rather than when we're unenlightened and unawakened we don't understand these natural laws, so we struggle and we have difficulties. We stumble, we fall down because we don't understand what we don't understand. So it's a class like this and learning where you awaken to the wisdom of the Buddha through learning, reflecting, and practicing. The way that we start this class is we start with actually doing meditation in order to prepare the mind to learn because as you clear out the mind then you're able to retain the teachings for longer and actually apply them in your daily life if you can retain more of what we're talking about in today's class and the questions that you ask and the discussions that we have then you can apply it to your daily life so we start with a very brief meditation just to kind of top up the mind because people who join this program are typically meditating two or three times a day and we just kind of use this brief little meditation just to kind of prepare the mind a bit for studying the Buddhist teachings. So I'd like to invite you to join for meditation by pulling up a meditation cushion or getting comfortable in your chair, whatever position it is that you typically use in order to meditate, just go ahead and take that position I'll just give you some very brief guidance because as I mentioned, people here typically are a little bit more into their meditation practice and don't need as much guidance. So you just would like your lower body to be comfortable, your hands and arms to be comfortable in the lap, and the upper body should be nice and erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert. Next, close the eyes and just start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Nice, gradual breath. Breathing in. And out. Your breath isn't going to necessarily match to the guidance that I'm sharing. This is just a reminder for you to breathe in through the nose. And out through the nose. Nice, gradual inhale. Not trying to control the breath, just allowing it to gradually enter through the nose. And exhale, gradually out through the nose. Not forcing it or controlling it. Just a nice, easy release. Breathing in. Start bringing the awareness of the mind to the breath. Fixate the mind on the sound of the breath or sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. 
fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. And out. Anytime you notice that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. I'm going to do some chanting and then just be quiet, allowing you to do this work of focusing on the breath. And wherever you notice that the mind is not on the breath, Cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Arahangsama.
meditation, we'll go ahead and switch over to learning the Pali Canon in English. Our moderators will select readers from those of you that are in Zoom, and those of you in Zoom are welcome to volunteer. I think that's the way you guys have it worked out, is that you guys volunteer. And then after someone reads the chapter, then I'll teach anything that I'd like to share on that chapter above and beyond what's in the explanations or maybe just kind of reiterating some of the points that are in the explanations of the chapters. And then I'll open things up to any questions that you guys have related to the specific chapters. So I'll go ahead and turn things over to all of you and the moderators in order to go through the class and then I'll just kind of step in when it's time to actually do the teaching or answer any questions. Oh, teacher, let's go to Nick for the first chapter. Discontentedness is dependently arisen. Good, good, Ananda. Anyone answering rightly would answer, just as Sariputta has done. I have said, Ananda, 
that discontentedness is dependently arisen. Dependent on what? Dependent on contact. If one were to speak thus, one would be stating what has been said by me and would not misrepresent me with what is contrary to fact. One would explain in accordance with the teachings and no reasonable consequence of one's assertion would give ground for criticism. Therein, Ananda, in the case of those aesthetics and Brahmins, advocates of Kama, who maintain that discontentedness is created by oneself, that is conditioned by contact. Also, in the case of those aesthetics and Brahmins, advocates of Kama, who maintain that discontentedness is created by another, that too is conditioned by contact. Also, in the case of those aesthetics and Brahmins, advocates of Gamma, who maintain that discontentedness is created by both oneself and by another, that too is conditioned by contact. Also, in the case of those aesthetics and Brahmins, advocates of Kama, who maintain that discontentedness has arisen randomly, being created neither by oneself nor by another, that too is conditioned by contact. All right. Thank you, Nick. So let's talk about a few things here. First of all, the Buddha is talking about the natural law of Kama, of this cause and effect, this action result, the results of our decisions. Not a mystical, magical thing, but the results of our decisions. And in order to create gamma, it has to happen through contact. There has to be contact between two beings or a being in a situation in order for there to actually be gamma. You can't just create gamma out of the sky. There has to be some kind of contact. And when the Buddha talks about contact, he talks about three things that are needed in order for there to be contact. Here, when we're talking about this discontentness, we're talking about central desire. So therefore, we're talking about the six sense bases. So let's just take the eyes. The things that are needed in order to create contact and thus then create gamma is first there needs to be the internal sense base, which is the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. Those are the six internal sense bases. So in this case, for the example I'm going to use, there's the eyes. The second thing that's needed is the external sense base. With the eyes, it's forms. With the ears, it's sounds. With the nose, it's odor. With the tongue, it's flavor. With body, it's physical objects that come in contact with the body. And then with the mind, it's mental objects. Those are the external sense bases. So with the internal sense base and the external sense base, then there needs to be consciousness or awareness. And those are the three things that are needed in order to create contact. So if the eye sees a form and then the mind becomes aware of it, that's contact. Contact has occurred. And now there's gamma that can be created as a result. So if we have the internal sense base, the external sense base, the awareness, which is the consciousness, or the Buddha calls it eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness, right? So if we have consciousness, we have the three things, 
the internal, external, and consciousness. Now we have contact and kama can be created. So what the Buddha is saying is discontentedness is dependently arisen based on contact. There needs to be contact through one of these six sense bases in order for there to be discontentedness. This is why he also talks about guarding the sense bases because all discontentedness is going to be coming in through one of these six sense bases. Discontentedness can't happen in the mind unless there's contact through one of these six sense bases. So if we guard the six sense bases, then we're being vigilant and aware of any kind of craving that might arise through one of these six sense bases and ensuring that we don't allow the mind to crave, but instead we cut that off and pull it back. When he's talking about gama here and he's giving the different examples of gama, gama is created by an individual. Other people can't create your gama for you. It's only you because gama is dependent on contact. Just like discontentedness is dependent on contact, gama is dependent on contact too. Someone else can't create gamma for you. It's only your decisions that lead to certain results. So as we make decisions, they lead to certain results in our life. So with the Buddha going through the different examples here, where he says in the case of those aesthetics and Brahmin, advocates of gamma who maintain that discontentedness is created by oneself, that is conditioned on contact. That's what the Buddha teaches in terms of how gamma is created, that it's created by our own decisions. But then he goes through these other examples, which aren't what the Buddha teaches, but are what other people believed in different communities that weren't part of him. Because remember, there was many different communities that were learning and practicing various types of teachings that those people were claiming that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment while the Buddha knew it was his. But he still found ways to kind of include people into his teachings in some ways and helping them see that his teachings are the truth. So these other three paragraphs where he says, advocates of gamma who maintain that discontentedness is created by another, which isn't true. This isn't true, that discontentedness is not created by another person. He's saying this too is conditioned by contact because even if you believe in the mind that someone else is causing you to be discontent, there still has to be contact in order for that to occur. And then the same thing here where he says, advocates of gamma who maintain that discontentedness is created both by oneself and another. That too is conditioned on contact. So there needs to be contact if this is your belief that you create gamma and other people create gamma for you, which isn't the truth. But he's saying that's based on contact as well. And then this last one, he says, advocates of gamma who maintain that discontentedness has risen just randomly. It just randomly came out of the blue. The mind became discontent. He's saying that gamma being created neither by oneself nor by another, that too is conditioned by contact. So essentially what he's getting to here is helping you see that all discontentedness is being arisen based on contact. Now, the way that you can use this is that if you're in a conversation with anybody with life partner, children, family, friends, anybody that anything's happening and you're observing that discontentedness is starting to arise in the mind. If you know that it's the internal sense base, the external sense base, the mind is aware 
and now there's contact and that's what's making discontentedness arise because there's craving in the mind then when there's contact now this discontentedness arises if you know that and you have that wisdom and you're in that conversation and you start feeling some anger or frustration starting to arise you can at that point decide to kind of guard the sense bases and in some cases what this means is to protect your contentedness you might just choose to exit the conversation you know if you're at a restaurant with a group of friends and they're starting to gossip and you're starting to feel discontentedness arise because you don't like to gossip and you're not comfortable just sitting there listening to it you might just excuse yourself to the bathroom and then take five ten minutes wash your hands walk around the restaurant or wherever you're at and then come back and by that time the conversation has changed right that might be just one way to handle it there's many different ways to handle different situations or if you're talking with a partner or children or family and you're realizing anger or frustration starting to arise you know that you're causing the discontentedness it's your own craving and it wouldn't be the right time for you to speak at that moment so rather than remain in the conversation allow the anger to keep rising it might just be wise to kind of change the subject to another topic or it might be wise to just kind of exit the conversation for a little while and then come back later. So this is how you use the Buddhist teachings in order to help you. That once you see and you can see the truth that this is indeed true, that discontentedness is dependent on contact, then you know that you can break off contact in order to allow the mind to gain its contentedness. Another example might be is if you're in a text message chat with somebody and when somebody sends you a text message, you observe that the mind gets angry or frustrated. Rather than shooting a message back really quick and creating unwholesome gamma, because now you have contact and you're operating from a mind of frustration or anger, instead, maybe put the phone down, turn it off, go for a walk, whatever, before you end up replying to that person at some later date, whether it's a few hours from now or a few days from now, there's no rush for you to hurry up and reply to a text message when you know there's just frustration and anger in the mind and because of contact, having contact with that person in your communication and because it's the wrong time to talk, you're gonna end up creating unwholesome karma where you can clear this out of the mind, eliminate contact, no longer contact this person for a period of time and then engage when the mind is better able to do that. So that's how you use this to your advantage and extinguishing your unwholesome gamma. Because in order to get to enlightenment, you would have to extinguish all your unwholesome gamma. If you stay in the fight, if you just keep arguing, if you just keep complaining, if you just keep being frustrated and sending the words and the text messages back and forth, this is just gonna create more and more havoc and more and more issues in your life, more and more difficulties. So you've gotta to get to the point where you can restrain the mind you can control it. You can have mental discipline where you're not reacting to situations, but instead you're responding. And when you respond, you respond through wisdom. And sometimes that wisdom, as the Buddha sharing here, that you can use this to your advantage is that when you are observing there's the potential for unwholesome karma to be created, just break contact. And then that's going to ensure that you're not creating any unwholesome karma. So let's see what questions you guys have about this chapter. The way that you do that is put it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and our moderators will be sure you have a chance to ask your question. Yes, teacher. 
Uh, from a week ago, someone sent to me a story. The teaching in it was that one can produce wholesome karma, uh, let's say merit, and transfer this merit to their dead relatives. Do you agree with this? This is impossible. The reason why this is impossible is because when you're practicing to generate merit, you're actually practicing generosity. And the benefit when you're practicing generosity is you're training your mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment of holding on to your time, effort, energy, and resources. You're essentially working to eliminate selfishness. So we practice generosity in order to eliminate selfishness, which is essentially that craving, desire, attachment to hold on to things so tightly. So you can practice generosity and it's going to benefit your own mind where you're eliminating and reducing your craving, desire, attachment. You're eliminating selfishness, but you can't transfer that elimination of selfishness to somebody else. It's not possible for you to accomplish that through any means whatsoever. So in order for somebody to actually generate the wholesome results of eliminating selfishness you would have to practice generosity on your own that's why the buddha teaches that we generate our own gamma we can't transfer gamma or we can't transfer merit to somebody else all we can do is gain the wisdom and practice ourselves to improve the condition of our mind if people are interested we can guide them we can share our teachings with them we can help them see the path but they're the ones that have to walk the path well, the point in that story, which I'm really interested to ask about, is that if those relatives got a new rebirth in heaven, in hell, or a afflicted spirits runs, is there a way in these two runs to make for beings to make their way out of these runs? They can make their ways out of the realms, but it's not going to be based on your actions. This is a misunderstanding that is in the world today is that people think that if your relatives go to hell or the afflicted spirit realm, that there's something you can do now in the human realm to help them out of those realms. You can't do that. It's not possible. Each individual being is producing their own gamma. The Buddha says you're the owner, the heir, the originator of your own gamma. And because of that, the reason why family members are born into hell or afflicted spirits, for example, is because of the decisions they made in this life. That's why they ended up in those realms. And in order for them to get out of those realms, they will have to be reborn multiple times, build up enough wholesome gamma to get to the point where they ultimately are reborn into a better realm like the human realm or the heavenly realm. But it's going to be through their actions, not yours. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for this one. All right. Let's go to chapter 102. The next volunteer is Miranda. With the destruction of craving comes the destruction of unwholesome karma. Monks, develop the path and the way that leads to the destruction of craving. And what is the path and the way that leads to the destruction of craving? It is the seven factors of enlightenment. Well, what seven? The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, the enlightenment factor of joy, the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of concentration, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. When this was said, the Venerable Udayi asked the perfectly enlightened one, Venerable Sir, 
power of the seven factors of enlightenment develop and cultivate it so that they lead to the destruction of craving. Here, Udayi, a monk, develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will. When he develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and illumination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will, craving is abandoned. With the abandoning of craving, unwholesome karma is abandoned. With the abandoning of unwholesome karma, discontentedness is abandoned. All of the seven factors of enlightenment are explained in the same way to include the enlightenment factors of investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, with the final factor being described in the same way as below. He develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and illumination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will. When he develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will, craving is abandoned. With the abandoning of craving, unwholesome karma is abandoned. With the abandoning of unwholesome karma, discontentedness is abandoned. Thus, Udayi, with the destruction of craving comes the destruction of unwholesome karma. With the destruction of unwholesome karma comes destruction of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is combining a few teachings for us. When he talks about unwholesome gamma, he talks about three things that create unwholesome gamma, craving, anger, and ignorance, or this unknowing of true reality. This is something we're going to be discussing tomorrow in the group learning program is the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. This is what's creating all unwholesome gamma in one's life. Because the mind has this pollution of craving, anger, and ignorance, it's making decisions through this pollution of mind, and the decisions are based in craving, anger, and ignorance. Therefore, those are unwholesome qualities that produce unwholesome decisions, which then produce unwholesome results in our life and things that we experience. The way to eliminate the unwholesome gamma is to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, transforming that to the three wholesome roots, which are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. These are the exact opposites of craving, anger, and ignorance. Generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And there's methods in which to transform the mind to these wholesome roots, which we're going to talk about in tomorrow's class. Well, if you're actively working on this path, then you understand that craving is what causes discontentedness. That's the main issue, that craving, desire, attachment. That's what's causing the discontentedness in the mind. And it's also motivating unskillful behavior, unskillful conduct, which then creates unwholesome decisions, which leads to unwholesome results for us. Well, these seven factors of enlightenment, these are a tool in which to refine the mind and fine-tune it, bringing it closer and closer to the middle. If the mind became excited or thrilled or has all this euphoria, this excitement, that's because of craving, desire, attachment. And the Buddha explains that it's the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, that awareness of mind, that you're aware of that. And then you practice the enlightenment factors of tranquility, 
concentration and equanimity to bring it back to the middle. So essentially, you're using those qualities of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity to observe and remedy this craving in the moment and actually actively bring the mind back to the middle so it can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And then likewise, if the mind goes to this sluggish, lethargic, complacent condition, then that's because of craving, desire, attachment too. So we remedy that with the enlightenment factors of investigation, energy, and joy. But it's that enlightenment factor of mindfulness, that awareness of mind that really puts all of this into motion. And you use whatever three enlightenment factors that you need to bring the mind to the middle and have it reside there. The enlightenment factors, they're not actually to determine if somebody is enlightened or not, although an enlightened being would be practicing them all the time. They would be practicing all of these enlightenment factors all the time, but that's not what necessarily determines if someone is enlightened or not. It's the 10 fetters and if those are actually eliminated from the mind. These seven factors of enlightenment are thought of as another tool that you can use to refine the mind and bring it into the middle. And the longer you're able to maintain that middle, both in meditation and outside of meditation, the mind gets used to residing in this groove and in the middle. And then when it's outside of that groove, you can notice it a lot sooner with mindfulness and bring it back. And you understand that, oh, the mind's feeling excited that's not helpful, that's kind of danger zone, let me pull it back before it goes too far. Or if you feel the mind becoming sluggish or complacent, when you're aware of that with mindfulness, then you can observe it and then you can use the proper tools in order to bring the mind back to the middle so that it can reside there longer and longer and you get these longer periods of time where the mind resides in the middle and eventually it gets to the point where the mind is so well trained and so well disciplined, it just always stays in the middle. It never goes outside. But in order to do that, you have to kind of jerk the mind back and pull it back, applying right effort and applying these factors of enlightenment as needed. So the more you understand what these factors are and how to use them, they then become tools for you to be able to apply them in the right situation at the right time. And all of this is helping to eliminate craving so that then that's the real source. That's the real root of the problem. Because if we keep the mind in the middle and we can maintain that for longer, longer periods of time, then the craving won't ever bring the mind out of the middle. That's the hiccup that keeps bringing the mind out of the middle. So by continually pulling the mind back to the middle and back to the middle, eventually you extinguish all this craving, which leads to the elimination of discontentedness, which is what the Buddha talks about down here, with the destruction of craving comes the destruction of unwholesome karma, meaning we're no longer going to be creating decisions based on unskillful, polluted mind of craving. And then when we destroy craving, then we're also destroying any production of unwholesome karma, which is ultimately going to destroy discontentedness or eliminate discontentedness. The Buddha uses this illuminating language of destruction of craving, you know, it really kind of helps the mind understand what you're really doing here is you're, you just utterly are stamping it out and destroying it in the mind so that 
it no longer is subject to future arising. You're not interested in seeing this craving to arise in the mind because when it does, it's going to motivate unskillful decisions, unskillful behaviors, unskillful conduct, which then if you put that out, it's going to end up coming back to you. And now you have to deal with that. So a wise practitioner is going to always be observant with mindfulness of any time craving arises to cut that off and let it go not allowing the mind to move outside of the middle. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? A question for the Swankinger. All right. So we'll go to chapter 103. Yeah, let's go to Ellie. The destruction of excitement. Seeing right, seeing rightly, we experience the baking away of strong feeling with the destruction of excitement can destruction of craving with the destruction of craving can destruction of excitement with the destruction of excitement and craving the mind is said to be well liberated all right thank you ali so here it's important to understand that this excitement that the buddha is talking about this is a conditioned pleasant feeling so anytime we allow the mind to base its inner feelings on some condition it's just training the mind to keep latching on and clinging to these things around us and allowing the mind to create these inner feelings based on some impermanent condition. This clinging, this craving, it's going to lead to continuous discontentedness, both pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and also neither painful nor pleasant feelings. So what the Buddha is sharing here is that when excitement arises in the mind, that's a pleasant feeling. That's discontentedness. What we do in the past when we don't have the wisdom of the Buddha is we chase after the excitement. We chase after the pleasant feelings. We want the excitement and we chase it and chase it and chase it. And as we chase it and we get it, then eventually that wears off. And now you're left with painful feelings at some point or neither painful nor pleasant. And now the mind starts chasing after pleasant feelings again. And now it chases, 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 chases. It gets the objects of its affection, or maybe it doesn't. And now it experiences painful feelings and neither painful nor pleasant. So the only way to get rid of discontentedness entirely is that you understand that discontentedness is not just the painful feelings, but it's also these pleasant feelings too. So that now with this wisdom, when you observe the pleasant feelings arising in the mind based on some condition that you cut that off and let it go, that you don't allow the mind to indulge or dwell in those pleasant feelings, because if you do, the mind's going to cling to them. The mind's going to crave it, wanting them to be permanent. And then when they're gone, then the mind's going to experience these painful feelings. So when you're experiencing something, you have to observe that, okay, I can enjoy this piece of chocolate cake, or I can enjoy this conversation, or I can enjoy going out to the park with my family or my friends or my children, or I can enjoy going to see some performance or something like this, but don't allow the mind to cling to it, wanting it to be permanent, wanting it to last, that when it's over, it's over and off to the next thing. It's when the mind is clinging to these things that the craving is then going to cause the mind to continue to want these pleasant feelings. It can't get them, so it's going to keep chasing and chasing and chasing, and eventually it's going to end up in painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So the Buddha is saying, with destruction of excitement, 
what he's saying is with destruction of these conditioned pleasant feelings where you no longer base your inner feelings on these impermanent conditions with destruction of that in craving which is the mind wanting to base its inner feelings on some impermanent condition the mind is said to be well liberated because your mind is not liberated because you can be pleased in any situation you can be content you can be peaceful you can be joyful in any given situation you don't want anything specific in order to create joy in the mind the joy is just always there let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter ali has her hand raised let's go here so teacher david um my co-worker she have she's going on vacation and just like the whole week she's like really excited she couldn't sleep is this part of like the excitement that the buddha is talking about yes that's discontentedness that's a perfect example that when we allow our mind to go to that elevated state and have those pleasant feelings then we have things where like we can't sleep or she's probably going to forget things to take on her trip and she's going to find out that she doesn't have certain things that she needs or she'll leave something at home that she needed or she'll trip and fall on the way or she'll leave her suitcase in the hotel there'll be all these different things because as long as the mind is in that excited state it can't be calm it can't have mindfulness it can't have concentration and therefore it can't use wisdom in order to make wise decisions so when we allow our mind to be uncalm and shaken up with these pleasant feelings or any of the other feelings that are discontentedness then we can't function with this optimal mental state where the mind is in the middle because the mind's been shaken up and it's moved to one side it's no longer in the middle and what a wise practitioner would do is if they see that occurring when they're planning a holiday or they're planning a vacation or what have you they'll plan the vacation they'll go on vacation but when they start seeing the pleasant feelings starting to arise they cut that off and bring it back and just realize like okay i'm going to enjoy this time away and i'm going to enjoy it as i do and when i do and then when it's over it's over because by allowing the mind to go into this pleasant excited state you'll see that she'll probably at some point when she comes back from the holiday she'll talk about painful feelings either that she experienced on the holiday because it didn't meet her expectations or after she gets back from the holiday she'll have painful feelings that now she has to go back to work and she's not on holiday anymore so when you allow the mind to go to those pleasant feelings it's only a matter of time before the painful feelings are going to come but the mind doesn't understand that when it lacks this wisdom it just thinks it's chasing after these pleasant feelings in a week later or two weeks later or whatever it is that the mind is experiencing these painful feelings it doesn't associate that those painful feelings came from the mind chasing after the pleasant feelings because if we allow the mind to base its inner feelings on this condition that's causing the pleasant feelings then it's also going to base its inner feelings on some condition that's going to cause the painful feelings as well so what you're doing on this path is you're training the mind to no longer base its inner feelings on some condition therefore that's why it can mm-hmm. remain permanently content because it's not shaken up every time it gets something agreeable it becomes pleasant every time something disagreeable happens the mind experiences painful feelings so when we train the mind to no longer base our feelings on these 
situations and these conditions, then the mind can just reside in the middle, permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, back to the example you used, teacher, which is a craving for a chocolate cake. Is it wise here in this situation to eat this chocolate cake, trying to eliminate the craving or to stop eating it at all? Okay, so if you observe pleasant feelings coming into the mind for something like a piece of chocolate cake or anything else in your life, the best thing you can do to eliminate the craving is, of course, have a generalized practice of breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. These are the two things that you should be doing all the time in order to train the mind to eliminate craving. But then when you notice specific cravings, like for a piece of chocolate cake, what you do is you distance yourself from that central desire. This is what the Buddha talks about in terms of how to get into the jhanas and how to move the mind into the jhanas, which are those preliminary phases before the first stage of enlightenment, and then how to move the mind further on the path to enlightenment to ultimately attain the fourth stage of enlightenment is separating the mind from what it's craving, distancing the mind from what it's craving. So what you might observe is that you order a piece of chocolate cake, the mind's craving it so bad, and then when you get it, you feel all these pleasant feelings. Or you order the piece of chocolate cake and the food server tells you, sorry, we don't have it. And then your mind gets frustrated or angry. Well, you know right there that if you're experiencing pleasant feelings or you're experiencing painful feelings, there's a craving for that thing in the mind. And rather than just allow it to precipitate and continue, what a wise practitioner would do is then distance yourself from it. Go three months, six months, however long you need, where you don't order this chocolate cake and you distance the mind from this chocolate cake. And then when you observe that it appears that the mind has let this go and it's no longer craving it, then start having a piece of chocolate cake again and then see how the mind functions, see how it responds to that, and then have a piece and then maybe wait a month or two or three and have another piece. So it's not that you have to give up chocolate cake entirely for the rest of your life, but you are going to have to distance the mind from certain things that it's craving for a period of time. Chocolate cake is one of those things that you can distance the mind from, eliminate the craving, and then ultimately you can start having chocolate cake again. But if it was something like cigarettes or cocaine or something like this, you'll have to eliminate that entirely 100%. You're not going to ever going to be able to go back to that and still attain enlightenment because of the nature of what the mind's craving. So certain things you can go back to. But in order to uh, eliminate the craving, you would like to have that breathing mindfulness meditation practice, the generosity continuous and ongoing. That's going to help with all craving desire attachment. It kind of softens the mind, makes it more readily willing to let go. And then when you observe specific cravings and you use that discontentedness as that red light on the dashboard of your car, when you see that red light, you investigate what is the craving oh, it's the chocolate cake. Let me distance the mind from this for a period of time. Let me go three months, six months, however long in order to separate the mind from this, not giving it the craving that it desires and that it wants. And now then slowly kind of reintroduce it back into the mind. And then you can comfortably enjoy this 
chocolate cake without clinging to it, without craving it, without wanting it to be permanent. Then you won't notice any pleasant feelings arise when you have the chocolate cake and you won't notice any painful feelings when it's not available. Instead, you can just eat the chocolate cake. You can enjoy it for what it is in the moment. And then when it's done, it's over with and you've had your chocolate cake. Yeah, thanks teacher. No more question. All right. Chapter 104. Yes. The destruction of craving is Nibbana, enlightenment. Venerable seer, it is said a being a being. In what way, venerable seer, is one called a being? One is stuck, Radha, tightly stuck, in desire, longing, excitement, and craving for form. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck, in desire, longing, excitement, and craving for feelings. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck, in desire, longing, excitement, and craving for perceptions. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck, in desire, longing, excitement, and craving for volitional formations, choices, decisions. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck, in desire, longing, excitement, craving for consciousness. Therefore, one is called a being. Suppose Radha, some little boys or girls are playing with sand castles so long as they are not free of desire, longing, excitement, thirst, passion, and craving for those sand castles. They cherish them, play with them, treasure them, and treat them possessively. But when those little boys or girls lose their desire, longing, excitement, thirst, passion, and craving for those sand castles, then they scatter them with their hands and feet, demolish them, shatter them, and put them out of play. So too, Radha, scatter form, demolish it, shatter it, put it out of play, practice for the destruction of craving, scatter feeling, scatter perception, scatter evolution formations, choices, decisions, scatter consciousness, demolish it, shatter it, put it out of play, practice for the destruction of craving. For the destruction of craving, Radha, is Nibbana, enlightenment. All right. Thank you, Basun. So this chapter here, there's a few things that we can glean from it. First of all, the Buddha talks in this chapter and he talks in other chapters about what makes a being a being. And whenever he talks about a living being, he talks about the five aggregates, form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and then consciousness. Basically, the way you think about this is these are collections. These are elements. There's this physical form that we have as human beings. Then there's these feelings that come into the mind based on experiences that we have. We have certain perceptions. These are opinions or views about the way things seem to be. Then we have certain volitional formations or choices and decisions that we make. And then we have this consciousness or this mind. This is what makes a being a being is these five aggregates. So, for example, a human being in an animal has these five aggregates. But something like a tree, they don't have all five aggregates. A tree has physical form, 
Some people say that trees have feelings. You know, we don't know 100%. I would say they don't. Then do trees have opinions or views, right? They don't have opinions and views. Do they have choices or decisions? Can they look at the tree next to them and say, you know, I don't really like this tree. I'm going to make a decision to stand up, walk 100 meters and replant myself. No, a tree can't do that because they don't have choices and decisions that they can make. And that's because they don't have this fifth aggregate, which is consciousness. They don't have a mind, right? So these are the five aggregates. This is what makes a being a being. Form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. The Buddha talks about in his Four Noble Truths, when he discusses the discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness in the way forward, leading to the elimination of discontentedness, he talks about clinging to the five aggregates is discontentedness. So if you cling to this physical form and you want this physical form to look a certain way, then you're going to cause yourself discontentedness because the mind is holding on maybe to your youthful appearance or you'd like your hair to look a certain way or your skin to look a certain way. And when it doesn't look that way, you're going to experience discontentedness if you're clinging to the physical form of the physical body. And you're also going to fear death because you're clinging to this physical body. Same thing when feelings are experienced in the mind. If you cling to that, if you have craving for certain feelings, it's going to cause discontentedness in the mind. Certain perceptions, your opinions and your views of the way things seem to be. If you cling to your perceptions, if you hold on to them, then when other people have different views and different opinions, you're going to cause yourself discontentedness because you have certain opinions and views. Someone else disagrees with you. Now there's going to be an argument and a fight because you're clinging and you're holding on and your mind's going to end up being angry and frustrated and sad and irritated and having all these different feelings because you're clinging to your perceptions. Same thing with volitional formations or choices and decisions. If you've made certain choices in your life about life partner or where to live or what type of job you have or what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes, if you cling to the various decisions that you've made and you're clinging to them and holding on to them tightly, then you're not going to be willing to change your decisions or let go of the things that you're holding on to. So you're going to end up causing yourself discontentedness. And then the same thing is if you cling to certain things in the mind, certain things that happened in the past, for example, if the mind is clinging to those pleasant things or those painful things from the past, it's going to cause discontentedness in this present moment because the mind is clinging to these things. So that's the first part of what the Buddha is talking about here. And he's now talking about these little boys and girls that have made these sandcastles. And if they make these sandcastles and they cherish them, they play with them, they treasure them, and they treat them possessively, meaning wanting to hold on to them and cling to them, then they're going to cause themselves discontentedness. They're not free. They don't have liberation of mind because they're clinging and holding on. Just like we cling to the five aggregates, we cling to this physical form of the sandcastle. We cling to our decision to make the sandcastle. We cling to the pleasant feelings of what it feels like when we're done with the sandcastle, right? So then the Buddha goes on and says, okay, but when these little boys and girls lose their desire, this 
longing, this excitement, this thirst, passion, this craving for those sandcastles. Then they scatter them with their hands and feet, demolish them, shatter them, and put them out of play. So when they do that, at that point, they've chosen to let go of the sandcastle and they're no longer holding on to it and they're completely okay with letting it go. But have you ever played with a sandcastle or observed someone play with a sandcastle and the waves come in and knock it down and then the child cries, right? Because their mind is craving and clinging to the sandcastle, wanting it to be permanent, but it's not. So what the Buddha is saying is that when you let go of these things, you don't cling to them, the mind is liberated. It won't experience discontentedness. So he's saying scatter form, meaning don't cling to form, demolish it, shatter it, put it out of play, practice for the destruction of craving. Don't crave to hold on to this physical form, wanting it to be a certain way, and there you will eliminate your discontentedness. And the same thing with feelings, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. He's saying, don't hold on to these things. Don't cling to them. For the destruction of craving, by training the mind not to hold on to these things, that is enlightenment, that the mind can then reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's no longer holding on, clinging, wanting these things to be permanent. So just like you let go of these sandcastles, let go of these five aggregates that the mind is holding on to, then you won't keep experiencing this constant cycle of rebirth. The mind will have experienced enlightenment. It won't be experiencing discontentedness in this life. You'll experience the rest of this life with peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentedness with joy. And then at death, you will no longer experience the taking up of these five aggregates again. There won't be rebirth again. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Seems that Miranda has a question. Let's go to her. Yes, sir. How does one practice scattering or cutting off and letting go of something like volitional formations? So like we're talking about before, when you see excitement arise, pleasant feelings, cut that off and let it go. Or when you see painful feelings, cut that off and let it go. So wherever you observe that there's discontentedness that arises as a result of clinging to these five aggregates, you cut it off and let it go. So if you observe pleasant feelings, painful feelings are neither painful nor pleasant. So related to your decision, say that you in your fiance have made a decision to go to the movies and you're headed down the street you're out for a night on the town you're going to go to dinner you're going to go to the movies you've been thinking about it for a few days this is a decision that you guys made and now you're on your way down the street and then boom you get a flat tire and now two hours goes by and if the mind is clinging to this decision of the movie for that two hours the mind's going to be discontent man, why'd we get a flat tire? You know, hurry up, get it fixed. We got to get to the movie. Oh my goodness. You know, we made this decision to go to the movie and the mind's clinging to it. And the mind doesn't think, well, you know what? In the present moment, we've got a flat tire. Let's fix it. And if we've got time, we'll still get to the movie. But if not, there's always next weekend too. Let's just go to the movie next weekend. But what the mind does because of craving and clinging is it wants this movie right now. 
it wants this night on the town. It wants to go have dinner and this romantic dinner that you've been planning for however many days or weeks. And it's clinging, clinging, clinging to this volitional formation. And therefore, it's going to cause itself discontentedness. So wherever you see those pleasant feelings as you're making the plans to go out on the town, you cut that off and let it go because it may not happen. It may happen or it may not. There's a whole lot of impermanence between now and when we're actually going to dinner and going to the movies. So let's not allow the mind to go into those pleasant feelings because it may not even happen. And then even when we're in the car on the way to dinner, we don't even allow the mind to get so excited that we're on our way to dinner because impermanence can pop up at any point. So you just enjoy what you're enjoying and just know that this situation can change at any moment based on impermanence. And when it does, just let it go and just realize, okay, what do we need to do now? Let's, okay, let's change our tire and see what happens from there. So that's how you scatter your volitional formations is you still will make decisions. You're still going to have to make decisions as part of your life, but you don't allow the mind to cling to it, experiencing pleasant feelings as a result of your decisions. And therefore, when impermanence comes to visit you, then you're able to go with the flow and just adjust according to impermanence and not experience that discontentedness. Thank you for explaining that. Yep, you're welcome. Let's go to Nick. Teacher, we have a question on YouTube from IA. IA writes, can you please explain how one may break contact in a respectful, peaceful way? Thank you. Every situation is different. It really depends. The situation, the people involved, the conversation, there's not just one right answer here. Sometimes that's what the mind wants. It thinks like, okay, there's like this magical, mystical way to break every conversation and that's supposed to work permanently in every situation. You can't do that. You can practice, you can try different options and then do what works in a given situation. Every situation's different. Sometimes you might just excuse yourself to the bathroom. Other times, if there's a lot of arguing and yelling going on, you might just choose to walk away and say nothing, right? So every situation is different. You have to read the situation and make a wise decision in the moment. You can't come up with one canned answer that's going to work permanently in every situation. This is what some people have gotten to in the world that, okay, when you hear somebody has, for example, I know in America, like if you hear somebody has served in the military, the stock answer is thank you for your service. Or if you hear somebody that has had a death in their family, I'm sorry for your loss, right? There's like these canned answers to every single thing that people are trying to get to like, oh, I know what the right answer is. And that's almost like functioning like a robot. It's like the mind isn't able to make wise decision. It's trying to kind of store these canned decisions to implement at every given situation that if this happens, do that. And if this happens, do that. And if this happens, do that. But what the Buddha is teaching and what I'm sharing is you need to be a wise individual 
that has this wisdom that in the situation you can read all the different things that are happening and then make the decision based on the wisdom of the Buddha where you're not causing harm. So you make decisions through the Eightfold Path, through right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and so forth and so on. And that in every given situation, if you're going to break contact from a given situation, you have to choose what's the best way to do that. And you don't necessarily have to tell the person what you're doing. So if you're text messaging somebody and then you realize that it's better for you to break contact, you don't have to tell the person, I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm going to put the phone down and not talk to you for the next three hours. Right? You don't have to do that. You can just put the phone down. And if they get angry and if they're like, why aren't you replying to me? So what? That's their own craving that they're wanting you to reply. That's their own expectation. So you make a decision to break contact. And sometimes it means just putting a phone down or walking away from a conversation. Other times it means that you might need to share a few words like, oh, excuse me, I need to go use the restroom and I'll be back or something like this. So you have to use your wisdom in the situation and apply the right speech or no speech at all in the given situation and not think about having this stock answer that should apply in all situations. This is the question for this chapter. Okay, let's move to the next chapter then. Chapter 105. With existence as condition birth, with birth as condition aching and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentness. Okay, thank you, Ali. So here the Buddha is essentially bringing in a little bit of dependent origination in order to help further explain how discontentedness arises. When you look at the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha gives four simple statements. He explains the problem, the cause of the problem, the elimination, and then the complete path to eliminating the problem. But when you look at the Buddha's teachings in depth, it's dependent origination that really explains the problem of discontentedness and it explains the problem of the cycle of rebirth, all in one teaching. He explains it step by step, showing you how one thing leads to the next, to the next, to the next. So here he's bringing in a little bit of dependent origination. It's actually 12 individual steps that he explains in dependent origination of how one thing leads to the next, to the next, to the next. So here he's saying, as a consequence of this, excitement arises. So there is something before consciousness. It's volitional formations. So it goes ignorance, volitional formations, and because of volitional formations, excitement arises. Excitement and consciousness is clinging. So now he jumps over feelings, craving, and some other things. It goes right into clinging. And essentially, when the mind is clinging to excitement, then because of clinging, it's going to lead to existence, meaning birth. It's going to lead to another rebirth. And if there's birth, 
there's going to be aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. And this is how discontentedness comes about. This is the whole origin of discontentedness. There's a 12-step process that he explains here. He's just explaining one section of it here in this particular chapter. So excitement, allowing the mind to continue to experience excitement, i.e. discontentedness, it's going to lead to continuous rebirth. It's going to continue to lead to painful feelings, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, despair. This is how discontentedness comes about, that if you allow the mind to chase after these pleasant feelings like excitement, then it's going to end up with painful feelings at some point. And if you allow that to continue throughout your entire life, then at the end of this life, there will be rebirth into some other realm, maybe the human realm, maybe the heavenly realm, or maybe one of the lower realms like hell, animal, or afflicted spirit. And the goal would be for you to gain the wisdom that you need in order to train the mind and unravel this whole chain of events, this whole sequence of events that occurs that leads to discontentedness. If you unravel that through training the mind, eliminating discontentedness, then you will know that because you'll see the diminishing of discontentedness over the course of your life. But you will also observe that when the mind is enlightened and there is no longer any discontentedness, you'll know that there will be no more rebirth, which means you'll never experience discontentedness ever again once you extinguish it in this life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No question this time, teacher. All right. Chapter 106. Yes, if you would be kind to read this one, teacher. Okay. This one's titled, A Stream Enter is Worth More Than Being a Wheel-Turning Monarch. Let's talk about a wheel-turning monarch. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there was various kingdoms that were around. And of course, there were various ruling monarchs or royal families. What a wheel-turning monarch is, is it's a king who is choosing to rule over their kingdom based on the teachings of the Buddha, meaning that when they make decisions about what to do in their kingdom, that they make them through the teachings of the Buddha. So in other words, where maybe other kings, if someone steals, they would chop off their hands or maybe on a second or third offense, they would kill them. In a kingdom that is being run by a wheel-turning monarch, they wouldn't do that because that royal family, that king is a wheel-turning monarch knowing that they're guiding their kingdom based on the teachings of the Buddha and you wouldn't chop off the hand or kill a being as punishment for stealing, for example. Uh, just one simple example. So the reason why they call it a wheel-turning monarch is because when a Buddha awakens from the unenlightened state to enlightenment, a Buddha will turn the wheel, the Dhamma wheel, the wheel of the teachings. This is located on a flat spot where the crown of the head and the back of the skull come together. A Buddha will have a flat spot on the top of their head and they will turn it counterclockwise when they awaken from enlightenment. This is kind of to signify the stepping forward of civilization, the stepping forward of humanity, because once a Buddha arises in the world, their wisdom is deep and profound. They can very clearly, concisely, and precisely explain the teachings that lead to enlightenment. So once a Buddha has awakened, they will turn this wheel kind of as a signification of humanity stepping forward. And then if a king were to rule over their kingdom 
based on the teachings of a Buddha, they're helping to turn this wheel. They're helping to move civilization forward because now there's 10,000 people or 50,000 people or 100,000 people in a kingdom that are now being guided by a really magnificent leader who's actually making decisions based on the teachings of the Buddha, which are these natural laws of existence. So as the population of people observe the king making these decisions based on the Buddhist teachings, they will be more likely to integrate these teachings into their own life. So now you've got 50,000 people, 100,000 people who are essentially indirectly learning the Buddhist teachings because they're observing the king practice these teachings through making decisions in daily life. And this will help the population of people to lead a more peaceful life because now there's not just the king making decisions based on these teachings, but you've got 50, 100,000 people perhaps that are all starting to make decisions in their households and amongst each other based on the teachings of the Buddha, which is going to lead to more peacefulness in their villages and in their communities. So that's what a wheel turning monarch is. They're helping to bring the teachings into the world in such a way that large numbers of people can learn them. And someone like a king or a president or a prime minister, someone like this, they're in a position to be able to do that. Where someone like us, mm, you know, we can't get a million people to follow us or, uh, you know, we're not a prime minister or a president or a king. We're not going to have the ability to maybe influence, you know, that number of people because we're not in that position. But a wheel turning monarch would be. And that's what the Buddha is talking about here is that a stream enterer, a person who's attained that first stage of enlightenment is worth more than being this wheel turning monarch because a wheel turning monarch isn't fully enlightened and they're not even in the first stage of enlightenment. They're just kind of learning and practicing the teachings and trying to lead this community of people, this kingdom based on the Buddhist teachings, but they're not doing it 100 percent. A being who gets to the first stage of enlightenment, they will have put together a whole lot of teachings and understand the teachings better than a wheel-turning monarch. And therefore, having this person who's a first stage of enlightenment in the community is actually going to be very beneficial for the community because this person is now going to be functioning in a way that others don't because the pollution of their mind has been minimized significantly. And now as they function in the world, they're going to be functioning very differently than someone who's not on the path. And then, of course, someone who's enlightened, who's moved from the first, second, third, fourth stage of enlightenment, this person's really going to be functioning in the world in a way that is wonderful for a population of people. But the Buddha is saying even that first stage of enlightenment is better than this wheel-turning monarch. But let me read his words here for you now that you guys have that little bit of introduction. Monks, although a wheel-turning monarch, having exercised supreme sovereignty, rulership over the four continents, with the breakup of the body after death, is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world, in the company of heavenly beings of the heavenly realm, and there in the Nandana Grove, accompanied by an entourage of heavenly nymphs, he enjoys himself supplied and endowed with the five cords of heavenly sensual pleasure. Still, as he does not possess four things, he is not freed from hell, the animal realm, 
the realm of afflicted spirits, not freed from the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the nether world. So essentially what he's saying is a wheel-turning monarch will be reborn in heaven, but there still can be reborn down into hell, animal world, and afflicted spirits because they're not yet a stream enter. So they're going to be potentially reborn down into one of the lower realms, one of the bad destinations, the netherworld. Although monks, a noble disciple maintains himself by lumps of alms food and wears rag robes, still, as he possesses four things, he is freed from hell, the animal realm, and the realm of afflicted spirits, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the netherworld. So once somebody attains stream entry, they will no longer be reborn in the lower realms. They're going to be reborn a maximum of seven times between the human realm and the heavenly realm. They will attain enlightenment at some point in their next seven lives, but they will no longer be reborn in the lower realms. And the Buddha is saying these are the reasons why. What are the four? Here, monks, the noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha. Thus, the Tathagata is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate, knower of the worlds, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one, the fortunate one. Two, he possesses confirmed confidence in the teachings. Thus, the teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable to being personally experienced by the wise. He possesses confirmed confidence in the community thus. The community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is practicing the wholesome way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. This community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. He possesses the virtues or moral conduct dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unsmeared, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. He possesses these four things. And monks, between the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents and the obtaining of these four things, the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents, is not worth a sixteenth part of the obtaining of these four things. So here you can see that the Buddha is prioritizing and seeing that these four things are better than being a wheel-turning monarch and having this rulership over a large group of people because it's these four things that are ultimately going to help lead a being to enlightenment. And these are part of the building blocks and part of the foundations that lead to attaining enlightenment. But of course, there's a lot of things that go into getting to that first stage of enlightenment and beyond. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Madame has a question. She says, is this the precise area of the Pali Canon, which one can understand clearly that being reborn in the heavenly realm is actually not favorable? 
this is a place where you can see that, right? Where oftentimes, depending on what you've been taught, is we think that being reborn in heaven is desirable and that it's a permanent place to reside. And that's where people experience everlasting life. Well, the Buddha is saying, no, that's not permanent, right? Because if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you know that everything else around us can't be impermanent. But yet this realm of heaven is permanent. That's not the way the natural laws work. So if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you understand all these realms are impermanent. And it's not desirable to be reborn in heaven. And from heaven, a being is going to either need to attain enlightenment from there, or they're going to be reborn in one of the other realms. And there is the potential that they can be reborn down into hell, afflicted spirits, or the animal realm. And in doing so, they're still going to have to make their way back to the human realm or heavenly realm at some point in order to get to enlightenment. So existence in the heavenly realm is still existence. And the Buddha did not favor or praise any kind of existence whatsoever, because as long as there's existence, there's going to be discontentedness. And existence in the heavenly realm, there's still discontentedness, which means the mind isn't enlightened yet, which means the being is still trapped in the cycle of rebirth. And there's the potential for rebirth into the lower realms or back into the human realm. So the goal would be in this human birth to learn, reflect and practice so that you can attain enlightenment and then escape the whole cycle of rebirth, not even being reborn into the heavenly realm. Thanks, teacher. No question. All right. This is chapter 107. Yeah, let's go to Ali. A confident stream entry. One, the eye is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The ear is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The nose is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The tongue is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The body is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The mind is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. One who plays confident in these teaching and the persistent in term in them thus is called a confident stream entry. One who has entered the fixed course of rightness enter the planes of wholesome person, transcended the plane of the whirling. He is incapable of doing any deed by reason of which he might be reborn in hell, in the animal realm or in the realm of the afflicted spirit. He is incapable of passing away without having realized the fruit of stream entry. All right. Thank you, Ali. So the Buddha is going to teach you here in the next two chapters these two different types of stream enterers. Keep in mind that the Buddha's mind had a deep, profound amount of wisdom about this path to enlightenment. And he had ways, even within the first stage of enlightenment, to distinguish one stream enterer from another. And he does this in other parts of his teachings in other ways as well, that he can distinguish different types of stream enters. Now, in order to get to stream entry, there's a whole book, volume five, which we're going to be studying in a few weeks, that is devoted to helping you get to stream entry, that first stage of enlightenment. And there's various things that need to happen in order to get to 
stream entry. There's certain things you need to train the mind towards in order to get to becoming that first stage of enlightenment or stream enter. The primary thing that needs to happen is you need to eliminate the first three fetters. There's personal existence view, doubt, and wrong observances and wrong behaviors. These are three things that need to occur. And I explain them in volume one in chapter three about what those three fetters are. But this book that we're going to be studying, volume five, puts together a whole lot of other teachings that help you to understand all the various things that you need to learn and practice in order to experience this first stage of enlightenment. Once a practitioner attains this first stage of enlightenment, there's two different types of stream entry. There's this confidence stream enter, and there's what the Buddha calls the teaching stream enter. This confidence stream enter is someone who understands the eye is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise, the ear is impermanent, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. These six sense bases are impermanent. They're constantly changing and don't grasp or cling through these six senses. A stream enter hasn't yet eliminated craving, desire, attachment. They still are clinging. They still are experiencing discontentedness, but they at least know in their mind that this is what leads to discontentedness. They just haven't yet been able to extinguish sensual desire yet. And as part of that training and all the other things that you learn on your way to stream entry and observing the diminishing of discontentedness, one places confidence in these teachings and persists in them thus is called a confidence stream enter because you will have confidence at that point that you understand the teachings of what it takes to get to enlightenment there's still a lot more to learn there's still a lot more to do but at that first stage of enlightenment you've seen enough of the teachings and you've seen enough of the improvement to the mind that there's this confidence that happens the mind has eliminated any doubt that they have about the teachings because you've seen the improvement to the condition of the mind. And the Buddha is calling this person a confident stream enter. Once somebody has attained the first stage of enlightenment, this third paragraph, the Buddha is explaining, he is incapable of doing any deed by reason of which he might be reborn in hell, animal realm, or afflicted spirits. So once somebody's attained the first stage of enlightenment, the mind does not regress from there. You don't move back down into the jhanas. You don't experience the things that are there. The mind has let go of a lot of things and it's practicing the teachings fairly well. It's practicing to the point where from that point forward, you will never experience any of the lower realms ever again. It's only a matter of a maximum of seven more lives before you extinguish everything you need to extinguish in the mind and actually attain enlightenment. You might even attain enlightenment in that life. Somebody could attain stream entry and then move right on through the rest of the stages and ultimately attain enlightenment in that same life. But once stream entry, that first stage of enlightenment has been attained, they will not be reborn into any of the lower realms ever again because they're incapable of doing anything that would cause them to be reborn. The mind just won't do it. The mind knows the teachings well enough and they've seen enough of the wisdom that they just won't allow the mind to create any kind of conduct that's going to cause it to be reborn into the lower realms. And the Buddha is saying here at the very end that 
you will experience the fruit of stream entry, meaning the benefits of stream entry. And what the benefits are is that you experience this significant diminishing of discontentedness in stream entry. By the time you get to enlightenment, all discontentedness is eliminated. But in stream entry, there's this significant diminishing. You'll see a lot of mindfulness. You'll see equanimity. You'll see concentration. You'll see focus in the mind. And these types of qualities of mind and others will be experienced and you will benefit from those having worked the mind to the point where it's been trained to get to this first stage of enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Nick has his hand raised. Let's go to him. Yes, teacher. In this chapter, two sentences stuck out. Uh, and I want to check knowledge on them. So one who places confidence in, in these teachings and is persistent in them, he is incapable of passing away without having realized the fruit of stream entry. Is this saying that if you just, you know, keep come keep coming to class, keep studying, you know, keep staying on the path, you know, you're eventually going to get there, like just just like anything else. You wouldn't be able to make a blanket statement like that and guarantee that somebody's going to experience that because it comes down to an individual's efforts. It comes down to how much they comprehend the teachings and apply them in their daily life. So you couldn't say that, you know, okay, as long as you keep coming to class, you will get to stream entry because it comes down to how well you comprehend, how dedicated you apply the teachings outside of class as well. So you wouldn't be able to say something like that and have it be true. Okay, thank you, teacher. There's more to it. Well, let's go to Ali. Hi, teacher. So from my understanding, from what you hear, from hearing what you're saying, so being a stream enter, um, once returner, a non-returner, we they not consider um, enlightened yet, enlightened. And in life being yet unless you pass through all that stage, right? Exactly. It's not until you get to the fourth stage, which is Arahant, that the mind is actually enlightened at that point. Because now it's cleared out all the ten fetters, all the pollution right. of mind has been eliminated, and the mind is actually enlightened at that point. Prior to that, the mind is experiencing certain qualities of enlightenment. It's getting glimpses of what enlightenment looks like, but it's not completely enlightened that it's still going to be experiencing discontentedness in that first, second, and third stage of enlightenment. I see. Thank you. Mm -hmm. No more questions, Abhishek. All right. So this is the second part of what we were just talking about. I'm mentioning that there's two different types of stream entry. Let's go to Nick for this chapter. A teaching stream entry. One for whom these teachings are understood Thus, after being pondered to a sufficient degree with wisdom, is called a teaching stream entry. One who has entered the fixed course of rightness, entered the plane of wholesome persons, transcended the plane of worldlings. He is incapable of doing any deed by reason of which he might be reborn in hell, in the animal realm, or in the realm of afflicted spirits. He is incapable of passing away without having realized the all right. Thanks, Nick. So as I mentioned, during the lifetime of the Buddha, he had profound wisdom and he had these 
different ways of looking at different types of stream enters. And it's sometimes helpful as a teacher to understand where their students are in the path to enlightenment. So even though we might not tell a student, a teacher is sometimes observing their student's mind and looking for different aspects of the mind to help them with and improve their mind so that they can get the teachings and the training they need to move closer and closer to enlightenment. But it's not like there's some badge that you get when you get to stream entry and you now wear that on your shirt and walk around that you're a stream enterer. And you certainly aren't going to get a badge that says, you know, I'm a confident stream enterer, I'm a teaching stream enterer, and now you walk around and, and you show that off to people, right? That's not what this is about. This is the Buddha really going into the depth of the wisdom of this path and just explaining the various types of stream entry. And as long as you understand what we talk about in volume five of how to get to stream entry, you don't necessarily have to dissect it to the point of, well, am I a confident stream enter or am I teaching stream enter? Which one am I? If you have obsession about this and trying to figure that out, it's going to actually detract away from just let's get to the fourth stage of enlightenment. That's the real goal. Let's not get bogged down here trying to figure out what type of stream enter I am or if, even if I am in stream entry. Instead, just stay focused on the ultimate goal, which is Arahant, the fourth stage of enlightenment, eliminating all 10 fetters. So while this teaching is here, this is something the Buddha explained and he shared with his students, it's not something that I suggest you put a whole lot of effort into trying to understand because as you'll see, one of the thickest books in this book series is volume five and learning and practicing what's in there is what's ultimately going to get you to stream entry. It doesn't matter if you're a confident stream enter or a teaching stream entry, just get to stream entry. And then from there, focus going all the way forward to Arahant, to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have here? Let's go to Mexico. Well, teacher, after saying not to focus on this, I don't, I don't even know if I should ask this question right now. Go but, ahead, uh, ask your question. Okay. All right, I'll go ahead. I'm, I've, I've seen these two um, side by side before in, in, in other books and other places. I was just wondering, um, I, I don't see the difference between the two. Like if you're confident, you're also going to be confident because of the teachings. So how is one a confident stream mentor and how is one a teaching stream? I, I just don't see how they're two different things. Yeah, so up here, the Buddha is talking about understanding the impermanence of the six sense bases and placing confidence in the teachings. But what you're pointing to is, well, how could you have confidence of the teachings if you didn't know the teachings? Because what this paragraph is teaching or sharing is that someone has understood the teachings and pondered them to a sufficient degree with wisdom that now they understand the teachings. So that's why I say, you know, don't really focus on this too much detail because in my view, as long as you get to stream entry, that's what's important. The difference here, I think it's probably so subtle, we're not seeing it. Maybe the Buddha understood it in a lot more detail than what we're understanding it as. But the goal is to get to stream entry. There's no badges here that you're going to be identified as one versus the other. In my view, you need to have a deep understanding of the teachings and you need to have confidence in them too, which is what you would ultimately have in order to get to a stream entry. So in my view, you would end up being both of these things at the same time. Thank you, teacher. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. One more question for another show. 
All right, chapter 109. Yeah, let's go to Miranda. Six cases of incapability I want accomplished in view. Monks, there are these six cases of incapability. What six? One accomplished in view is one, incapable of depriving his mother of life. Two, incapable of depriving his father of life. Three, incapable of depriving an arahant of life. Four, incapable of shedding the Tathagata's blood with a mind of hatred. Five, incapable of creating division in the community. And six, incapable of acknowledging another teacher. These are the six cases of incapability. All right, thank you, Miranda. So accomplished in view is someone who's established right view, and that's part of the Eightfold Path. We understand right view is the Four Noble Truths, deeply understanding and penetrating those, seeing the wisdom in those, and then applying it to your life. And the way that I teach that as part of the group learning program is establishing right view. Well, once somebody has established right view and they become more and more accomplished in practicing right view, the Buddha is saying, okay, there's these six things that someone who has fully established and is well accomplished in view they would be incapable of doing these six things because they would have such clear view of these teachings. They're not enlightened yet. Someone who's accomplished in view isn't necessarily enlightened yet. An enlightened being will be accomplished in view, but you can actually be accomplished in view without yet being enlightened. But to get to that first stage of enlightenment, you would need to be accomplished in view. So someone who's in the first stage of enlightenment would be incapable of killing their mother, killing their father, killing an arahant, someone who's enlightened, incapable of even harming a Buddha. That's the number four. The Tathagata's blood with a mind of hatred. You know, this is a Buddha, that someone who has gotten to that first stage of enlightenment and is well accomplished in view, they understand the teachings really well. They've seen this diminishing of discontentedness. They're not yet enlightened, but they know enough that they would never ever take the life of a Buddha, right? They would be incapable of creating division in the community. So whatever community they grew up in, in order to get to that stage of enlightenment of stream entry, it was, of course, the teacher that helped them, but it was also other members of the community too. So they would be incapable of creating arguments or backstabbing or creating situations where people are at odds with each other because they would have such appreciation and gratitude for this community. The last thing they're interested in doing is shaking it up or disturbing it in any way because it's this community of practitioners and teachers that help them get to that first stage of enlightenment and they can see the improvements to the condition of their mind. So the last thing they're interested in doing is breaking this up or creating any kind of division in this community because they know they're going to need this community in order to ultimately get to enlightenment, the fourth stage of enlightenment. And then the sixth one is incapable of acknowledging another teacher because if you've gotten to stream entry and you know that that particular teacher, either during that lifetime would be the Buddha or after his lifetime, if you've been studying with a particular teacher, that their teachings were able to get you to stream entry and you noticed all of these benefits as a result of getting to stream entry, 
you observe for yourself. Nobody had to tell you that your mind is more concentrated, that it's more focused, that you're experiencing less discontentedness, that you have more awareness or mindfulness, there's more equanimity, there's more tranquility of mind, all these different qualities that are now coming into the mind. Nobody has to tell you that that occurred. You can observe that for yourself. And it was that particular teacher that helped you to get there. And the Buddha is saying that once you get to being accomplished in view, i.e. in that first stage of enlightenment, you would be incapable of acknowledging any other teacher as being your teacher because you know that this teacher has helped you to get to all of that progress to experience the first stage of enlightenment. And now it's continuing to stay dedicated and learning with that particular teacher to get you to the second, third, and ultimately the fourth stage where you're an otter hunt and the mind's fully enlightened. So the Buddha is saying, you know, would be incapable for someone who's accomplished in view, i.e. in this first stage of enlightenment, to kill their mother, father, an enlightened being, to even harm a Buddha in any way, to create any kind of division or separation or issues within the community of practitioners or to acknowledge any other teacher besides the teacher who has actually helped you to get to that first stage of enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this one? Nick has a question. Let's go to him. It's not really a question, teacher. It's just something I noticed and uh, maybe check knowledge on it. One, two, and three. It, it specifically says mother, father, arahant. It doesn't, I noticed it doesn't list all beings. So therefore, does that mean a stream enterer is uh, not responsible to preserve life at all costs? Yeah, there's there's never a time where you're going to preserve all life at all costs, right? That's not something that the Buddha ever taught. But instead, we're going to live compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. So here, the Buddha is not going through every single thing of incapability. He's picking like the top ones. So sometimes what happens is when we look at teachings like this, we try to look at them in isolation, but you have to look at them in totality. You're going to see that the Buddha actually gives a couple of other versions of these six cases of incapability by one accomplished in view. He's actually got a couple other versions where he puts in some other things in here, too, where he talks about a person who's accomplished in view is incapable of seeing anything as permanent, you know, like conditioned objects as being permanent. He talks about all these other things as well. So this is just one slice of the pie of one who's accomplished in view of things that they would be incapable of doing. A person who is a stream enterer, while it would be wise for them to not kill other living beings, there could be a potential for someone who is a stream enterer that they might still kill a living being. And that might be something that we observe for someone in a stream entry. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right, so the last chapter for today is 110. Final knowledge is achieved by gradual training. Monks, I do not say that final knowledge, wisdom, is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And how does there come to be gradual training, gradual practice, gradual progress? Here, 
One who has confidence in a teacher visits him. When he visits him, he pays respect to him. When he pays respect to him, he gives ear. One who gives ear hears the teachings. Having heard the teachings, he memorizes them. He examines the meaning of the teachings. He has memorized. When he examines their meaning, he gains a reflective understanding of those teachings. When he has gained a reflective understanding of those teachings, enthusiasm springs up in him. When enthusiasm has sprung up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he investigates. Having investigated, he strives. Purposefully, purpose, purposely striving, he realizes with the ultimate truth and sees it by penetrating it will it with wisdom. All right. Thank you, Basum. So this is one of the beautiful things about studying the words of the Buddha is you can see what did he truly teach and really cut through the impermanence and the misunderstandings and the things that some people think are actually true. But when you look at the Buddhist teachings, you can see that they're not true. One of the biggest myths that are out there in the world about the Buddha is that he sat down under a tree and that he instantly attained enlightenment through meditating. Just boom, he just came to enlightenment kind of magically and mystically. Well, you can see here and in other places of his teachings that that's not true. That while you might have heard that, while that might be what people say, that might be what people depict, even in certain movies or certain books that you might read or what people say here and there, that the Buddha never said that he attained enlightenment all at once. You can see it right here that he says it's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. So with that wisdom and understanding that the Buddha didn't attain enlightenment all at once, that it was a gradual progression to enlightenment, then you know that that's what it's going to take for you too. That it's not just meditation, that you sit down under a tree and meditate and then boom, you get to enlightenment. Instead, there's this gradual development of the mind, this gradual training, this gradual practice and this gradual progress that gradually moves the mind away from this pollution and helps to purify the mind where it can now function without this pollution of mind. So not only does it help you to break through any impermanence or misunderstandings, but it also helps you apply this to your own practice that you shouldn't sit down and expect results in a week or a month or you know, maybe even six months, that it's going to take you some time. You'll gradually see progression. You'll gradually see improvement to the mind, even in a few weeks and a few months. But in order to get to enlightenment itself, it's going to take some work of this gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. The other thing that you can look at here to break through misunderstanding and things that are kind of out there in the world and myth is that there's kind of this myth that people can attain enlightenment on their own. They'll say, well, the Buddha attained enlightenment by himself, so that means you can too. Well, that's the reason why he's a Buddha is that he attained enlightenment by himself. That's the first main criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they attain enlightenment on their own. They then dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings and then helping countless beings to attain enlightenment. And then the third thing is that they leave their teachings in such a condition that many people after their death can attain enlightenment beyond their death. So 
the reason why the Buddha didn't have a teacher. He did it first. He had two teachers, but then they didn't lead to enlightenment. So he went out on his own for many years before he ultimately came to understand the teachings that lead to enlightenment. But here, a Buddha understands that everybody needs teachers. A Buddha would only be able to attain enlightenment because they're an actual Buddha. If the Buddha was suggesting that nobody needed teachers, well, then when he awoke from enlightenment, he would be like, okay, I did it. Now you guys do it too. See you later. Bye. Right? Like he wouldn't have spent 45 years sharing his teachings if everybody could do the same thing that he did. He would just be like, yeah, I got enlightened. So why don't you guys do it? Come on, snap, snap, move along. Let's do it. I'm going to go back to the palace now. He didn't do that. He spent 45 years because he knew people needed the teachings. That was the only way for them to attain enlightenment. And because he had discovered them as a Buddha, it was his responsibility to then share them based on his choice to now share them with others out of loving kindness and compassion for the world. He dedicated the next 45 years of his life to sharing them and then left the teachings in such a condition that others could attain enlightenment after his death. So here you can see him talking very directly that, you know, one who has confidence in a teacher visits him. So you need to have a teacher in order to progress to this enlightened mental state. The primary reason why the mind is in the unenlightened state is because of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. What gets you to enlightenment is this final knowledge or this wisdom, having this wisdom. And the only way that you can get to that is by learning with a teacher. So the Buddha gives you kind of a step-by-step of how to ensure that you're actively learning with a teacher. And he goes through point by point, helping you understand how to ultimately arrive to this final thing that he talks about, which is wisdom. You need to get to wisdom. And how do you do that? Gradually is what he's talking about here. And you do it through having a teacher where you visit them, you pay respect to them because that would keep the relationship wholesome. And the teacher should be having respect and gratitude for their students as well. Then you give ear, meaning you listen to the teachings, you hear the teachings, you memorize them, you examine the teachings, right? You don't believe them. You examine them with those memorized teachings. You then start reflecting on them, right? You reflect on them. And then as you gain this inner reflection, you start having this enthusiasm because you start seeing that, yeah, the teachings that I'm learning are actually the truth. And they're actually leading to more wisdom and the mind's improving. So there's this enthusiasm that kind of develops in the mind. And you might feel these pleasant feelings like, oh, my goodness, my mind's getting more peaceful. And you got to kind of have to bring the mind down and calm it down because you observe this peacefulness coming into the mind. Like, oh, my goodness, I found this path. It's working just like the Buddha said. So this enthusiasm springs up. You start applying your will or effort, right? You start putting effort into learning the teachings and you investigate them, you strive. And then all of this culminates into realizing the ultimate truth. And then you see it more and more. You get this penetrative wisdom where now you understand these natural laws of existence more and more. And through training the mind this way, the discontentedness gradually diminishes and you can see the truth for yourself that indeed where you're headed and what's transpiring is the condition of the mind is gradually improving as 
it's matching to what the Buddha is saying. So if you see this gradual improvement to the condition of the mind, then it's matching to what the Buddha is saying here. And you can see, aha, the Buddha is speaking the truth because he's actually explaining the same experience that I'm having is that as I learn more through this gradual training, this gradual practice, this gradual progress, I'm seeing discontent and this gradually diminish. That's how you confirm that this is the truth. You don't believe what the Buddha is saying here, but you can see it and you can observe it and you know that this is the truth because that's what you're experiencing as well. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Seems that uh, these are all the questions we have for the literature. All right. Well, I'll just switch off this technology and go back to kind of full screen so that I can just thank you guys for joining today's class. It's really wonderful to see you guys progressing and learning. We're almost done with volume three. You know, we've been in this book for a good three months now. And next week, we're going to be in chapters 111 through 124. So go all the way to the end of the book. The book ends at chapter 124. So it's a little bit more than what we typically will read, which is 10 chapters a week. It's a, a few more. So go all the way to the end of the book and we'll be completing that next week. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be in chapter eight of volume one, which is titled Transforming the Three Poisons, Craving, Anger, and Ignorance. In that class, we're going to discuss these three high-level problems that are keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. And we're gonna talk about the solutions for those. This is where it really opens up, where we're not just talking about craving desire attachment anymore, which is the, a very important problem to deal with, but we're gonna be talking about these other two as well, which really helps to open up the eyes to the wisdom of the Buddha even more, that you can see more of the problem in the unenlightened mind. Therefore, you will get the solutions of how to remedy the mind and see the improvements for yourself. On Wednesday, we'll be doing the very last class of our four-part Buddhist chanting class. We did a four-part series. This Wednesday will be the last one of our four-part series. And then the Wednesday after that, we'll be doing breathing mindfulness meditation and rotating that with breathing mindfulness, loving kindness every other week. We'll be doing breathing mindfulness, loving kindness, breathing mindfulness, loving kindness all the way through the rest of the group learning program. So I'll see you guys either on Sunday, Wednesday, or Saturday. And in the meantime, have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.